You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 16th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has staked his reputation, as he puts it, uh, do or die in a ditch by the end of this month. That said, time is extremely short, uh, and if there is to be a deal, then it needs to be probably the uh, T's crossed and the I's dotted within the next few hours or 24 hours or so, so that it can go through the necessary stages to be implemented by the end of the month. My guests Tessa Shishkovitz and James Rogers will discuss whether a deal between Europe and the UK can be reached this week, and the day's other news, including shifting alliances in Syria as Russia's plan all along appears to have been vindicated and begrudging allies the US and Turkey very much at odds. And leadership debates, always great political theatre, but do they ever inform? Plus... It would have been unfathomable, even a decade ago, to grow multi-million dollar businesses by selling pre-worn dresses and boots. So what's behind our softening stance on second-hand? The latest view from Monocle today on second-hand fashion. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by James Rogers, leader in international journalism studies at City University London, and Tessa Shishkovitz, UK correspondent for Profile magazine. Uh, we will start with Brexit, due to happen 15 days from now, and still being touted by its enthusiasts as some sort of relief from the last three years and change of rancour and seethe, as opposed to merely the beginning of years and years more of arguments and negotiations, which may well prove, if anything, even more tedious. Today is allegedly the last day of talks between the UK and the EU before what is being billed as the Crunch Summit tomorrow. Elsewhere, meanwhile, various players in British politics are still floating the idea of another referendum on EU membership, the last one having been such a fabulous non-waste of everyone's time, energy and money. Uh, James, first of all, is a deal actually going to happen? Um... I don't know. I mean, I think it looks like there's going to be some kind of agreement, but it's um, it's very hard to say where we go from here. I mean, I think nobody has really dared to predict anything from uh, from the day before the referendum in June 2016 onwards. I've been daring um, to predict things for three years, and they've all been wrong. Well, there we are. Maybe I've been a bit more cautious. I mean, I think there is certainly the will there. Um, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has staked his reputation, as he puts it, uh, do or die in a ditch by the end of this month. Um, so uh, he while He's benefiting from a lot of support from those people who see him as the man to deliver Brexit after a very uh, long waiting period. That support may begin to wane if he can't deliver that. That said, time is extremely short, uh, and if there is to be a deal, then it needs to be probably the uh, T's crossed and the I's dotted within the next few hours or 24 hours or so, so that it can go through the necessary stages to be implemented by the end of the month. Uh, Tessa, just to remind ourselves of the bind in which Boris Johnson is in... um, He has pledged to leave on October 31st or die in a ditch, but uh, as the law presently stands, he can't do that uh, if there isn't a deal. Parliament simply won't let him. So if he does get a deal, uh, and to get it, he is going to have to make concessions to the EU, especially on Northern Ireland. Can he somehow spin that as not the capitulation that he promised he would never undertake? Well, if somebody can spin it like that, then probably him. I mean, it <laughs> seems to me now that none of the holy cows and none of the red lines that we have been discussing in the last three and a half years is still valid or 
everything can be sold within 24 hours for anything. The sole, you know, the the uh, the Irish border, uh, Northern Ireland's unity with the UK, everything is up for grabs at the moment because everyone is so stressed and so tired of Brexit talks. But it doesn't seem very likely that there will be a deal um, in Brussels that can be implemented before the 31st of October. And I think the die in the ditch thing, we have passed this stage. I think Boris Johnson, also according to the words of his Brexit minister, Stephen Barclay, this morning in the Brexit committee in Parliament, were quite pointing in the direction that he will ask for an extension. And it's quite unlikely that the EU will refuse an extension because they don't want to be seen as meddling in British affairs. So even if there's a technical agreement reached over a deal in Brussels, I think in order to implement it, we will see quite an extension into probably the beginning of 2020, if not till late spring 2020, in order to get anything done that makes sense. Uh, or, or if indeed not until the sun dies, extinguishing all life on this earth. Um, <laughs> James, do, do we at least, uh, Tessa brings up Northern Ireland there, do we at last get the sense that after three and a half years of everybody who had thought about the issue for longer than about 30 seconds saying there won't be a border in Ireland because there can't be, um, that the Conservative Party has now got their heads around that fact? Well, we'll see. I mean, there's been some fairly uh, strange suggestions made over the time. They've been some extremely about this sort of strange This super high tech that was going to solve the problems of not having customs posts and that seems to have gone a wee bit quiet now possibly because that super high tech doesn't exactly exist or at least not in a way that's practical. So it's hard to see and we're also hearing noises. I mean it is interesting to see how little detail has leaked from these discussions as they're going which is not possibly the way of the world. because there isn't any. Well possibly <laughs> but also I mean it, there is this has, been, this has been a very sort of leaky process from start to finish and this has not been marked by that maybe because there's no detail um, we do go though gather last night with the uh, Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland saying that they still have misgivings if they can't be got on board um, then the numbers for passing a deal in the British Parliament start to look a bit harder not impossible but harder and they're this not is, this is, easy the, yeah, but when the, when the DUP says we have misgivings they are they, might, ge- they are gearing up to naming a very large sum of money they aren't might, they? Well, that, that has, there are there are precedents yeah. for that within recent British political history let's put it that way. Um, Tessa, on the idea of a second referendum, the Liberal Democrats here in the UK have tabled an amendment to the Queen's speech calling for any deal that is struck uh, to be put to a referendum. Um, Were such a thing to take place, do you think it would solve anything really? Well, it would solve a referendum as elections could solve uh, the question if there's a majority for anything in the country. That it would not make people happy who are on the other side and would lose this election or the referendum. But it would be a decision. It's like in war. You know, people don't come home happy. They come home defeated or victorious. And then you have to go on with life. So that would be the same thing with the Brexit process after another referendum or elections and both of them I think but I'm of course Austrian would be quite democratic that after three and a half years of indecisive negotiations that you would ask the people again about what they actually want in out or this or that or a no deal Brexit or a Brexit that is according to Boris Johnson's deal that he's now negotiation negotiating in Brussels I think all these 
the Brexit process is so painful for this country and so divisive that you won't get out of it easily. But in the end, it's democracy to have a majority vote on something and that people will have to follow in the end. Just before we move off this subject, I, I want to return to our regular parlour game of asking guests what's actually going to happen. I just want a very quick answer from each of you on this. You first, James. November the 1st. Is the UK still in the EU or not? Uh, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. Well, we'll see. I mean, I, I'm not going to make any bold predictions. I've just made one there, but I, I don't <laughs> think it will be. I don't think it will be. I think oh, I think if it is, I think it will be for a lot longer. And Tessa? I think, yes, they will, you will still be a member of our wonderful union. Tessa Shishkovitz and James Rogers will be back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bache has some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam has been forced to suspend her annual address in Parliament. Opposition lawmakers disrupted the Legislative Council session by shouting and projecting slogans behind her. It is the first time a leader in the city-state has been unable to deliver the address in the chamber. Belgium has received a third request from Spain's Supreme Court to extradite Catalonia's former leader, Carles Puigdemont. He went into self-imposed exile in Belgium in the autumn of 2017, after Catalan separatist leaders organized a referendum that Spanish courts had ruled illegal. Turkey's government has rejected U.S. calls for a ceasefire in northern Syria. The offensive was launched to drive Kurdish troops away from the Turkish border, but the move has caused a diplomatic spat between Washington and Ankara and prompted the withdrawal of U.S. troops from the region. And today's Monocle Minute reports that sports fans are doing their bit to add some froth to Japan's economy. The country's four big brewers, Kirin, Asahi, Suntory and Sapporo, reported double-digit sales growth of beer and other drinks. Much of the credit must go to fans at the Rugby World Cup. Those are some of the stories we are following here at Midori House. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller, still here with Tessa Shishkovitz and James Rogers. Let's move along to the situation in Syria. And if you're confused by what's going on there, spare a thought for how Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan currently feels. Having had his forces waved into northern Syria by US President Donald Trump, he now finds himself pressured to call his troops off by US President Donald Trump on pain of severe economic retribution. Arguably, even more menacingly, Erdogan will shortly be entertaining U.S. Vice President Mike Pence and U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Russia, vaguely allied to both Turkey and Syria, claims to be heroically preventing open combat between the two. Um, Tessa, is this Pence and Pompeo trying to clean up after their president? It's such a mess at the moment. It's such a breakdown of international politics as we knew it, because this uh, fading role of the U.S., um, in the Middle East only gives Putin um, of Russia the, the the big part to play. And I think if you look at the, the images that uh, Russia today, the Putin's propaganda TV channel now showed in the last days of the abandoned military posts of the US, that is such a painful sight to think that the only leader, political world leader that is now seen to be the one who can actually do something on the ground is Russia. Well, on that subject, James, uh, President Putin, it says here, has invited President Erdogan to meet him in Moscow. And I think we can read a great deal into that uh, invited. Mm. Uh, Has Erdogan overplayed his hand? 
At uh, least, as, certainly, at least as Russia sees it. Possibly. I mean, I think that it is. It's certainly giving Russia an opportunity to prove that it is the only power in the region. I mean, if um, Russia sensed that there was a policy vacuum in relation to Syria four years ago when they first made their big military move into Syria in 2015, I think they sense there's a big territorial vacuum there now. Think about what President Putin has been doing this week as well. He's been visiting Saudi Arabia. Uh, he's still a very close traditional US ally, still have very pretty good relations with Iran. They're on the same side in Syria. So the, Russia is re, has really trying to show itself and has, I think certainly this week succeeded in doing so as the only party to whom everyone in the region will speak. And the symbols, as Tessa notes, of this uh, propaganda stuff of Russian military contractors, mercenaries, however we're going to refer to them, showing themselves on social media in abandoned US bases, are very, very powerful images in an age where these uh, social media images in conflict are almost as important as where your troops are. Uh, Tessa, it, it, it's clear that President Trump has gone about this in an impulsive and sudden and disorganised way. But if, if we take away the way that the US has left Syria uh, and the fact of the president who ordered the US to leave Syria, is it necessarily a bad idea? Is there something to be said for any American president regarding a situation like Syria and just saying there is nothing in this for us? If Russia wants it that badly, they can have it. Well, clearly there is. You can't abandon your your allies in the region uh, and hand them over to be slaughtered, especially if I think of the Kurdish female fighters who really defended uh, not only their own territory, but also sort of, in a way, the honor of the world mm. under the onslaught of Islamic State and uh, Assad's uh, Syrian army. It's and now are being sort of handed over uh, to the Turkish army to be uh, killed. It's absolutely devastating. It's devastating for the European Union. The what Trump does, of course, because he's uh, very focused on his domestic agenda, is one thing. The other thing is that we as Europeans do not have the force, the power to send our own defense troops to in a situation like this to take over these 1,000 men's posts in the north of uh, Syria to show that we are serious about our values. And that's something where, of course, also the British situation comes in that at the moment when we would need cooperation between Britain, which is a very strong military power, and the European Union powers, which have partly with France also some power, but a lot of them have not, like Austria or Germany is quite still hindered in getting involved in military conflict. But we would need to really think about this, st make strategies, build up our forces for peace uh, defensive missions and then go there and not be so dependent on a very volatile situation in the White House where you don't know if somebody at 5 o'clock in the morning takes decisions on Twitter and then everyone else is trying to roll back for the rest of the week. Uh, just a final thought on this one, James, and on the subject of presidents involved in this who may have overplayed their hands, uh, do you detect a certain amount of nervousness from Donald Trump about how this is playing, not necessarily with his base, who I'm, I'm sure will just believe whatever he tells them to believe, but even other Republicans and other pillars of the American establishment, which have bitten their tongue until now, uh, sounding extremely unhappy about 
this instruction that he has given. Yes, I think so. I mean, I think there's a, there's a degree of unhappiness. I think it wouldn't be too much to say there's a degree of shame as well among. I mean, e- e- even Mitch, even Mitch McConnell uh, issued a statement um, suggesting that he thought this was undesirable. Well, that's right. But I, I think, you know, the, 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 the Brookings Institute published a very big paper earlier this year in which they noted that uh, the United States' influence in the region was in decline. And the last couple of weeks have seen this as confirmation of that. They are, no, they are not the military and diplomatic power they once seen as. Uh, and Russia, for the time being, certainly uh, is moving in to fill that gap for, to a large extent. The other thing about Russia is, I mean, I think they're hoping that this is going to end well. So far, the campaign in Syria has gone well. I think it's always in interesting to remember with Russia, though, that those people who are now at the top of politics and the army in Russia are all of an age to have remembered Afghanistan. Mm. And that's still a scar on Russia's recent history. So I think they will be very cautious about how uh, this proceeds. Presumably now they've secured victory for President Assad, their firm ally. They've shown that they're a reliable partner. But the longer term, the questions still remain. Okay. well, finally, on today's news panel to the latest square off among the hefty field, hoping to hoping rather to unload President Trump at next year's election. The fourth televised Democratic debate took place last night. As is the way of these things, it was more illustrative of the internal jockeying of the field rather than meaningful policy difference. Uh, Given the volume of attacks upon Senator Elizabeth Warren, there now seems to be a consensus that she is the front runner. But do these set pieces really change anyone's mind? Um, Tessa, exactly that question, really. Whether it's been in an election that you've uh, had a vote in or one you've just been observing, have you ever watched any kind of debate and thought, I now think I'm going to vote for somebody that I didn't think I was going to vote for? Well, most people, I think, watch this debate with predetermined political views and also some party loyalties. Having said that, there are always like 20 to 30 percent of swing voters. And at the moment, we have such a situation where political landscapes are being blown apart uh, very, very quickly, as you can see in this country, but you can see all over Europe. So TV debates, I think, are just an absolutely fantastic tool (laughs) to bring people, candidates out and also into debate with each other. Because often, if you don't do this live and against each other, people will not necessarily even have the opportunity to see how people react in in uh, confrontation to the other uh, parties and their leading candidates. So I think it's a very, very useful thing to do. James, I mean, the UK is quite an interesting case study as to how the culture of televised debates changes politics, because here they're actually a relatively recent innovation. In the United States, they they go back at least until the 1960s, I think. But in the UK, they didn't really happen uh, until quite recently. Do you think they've been part of the changes we've seen in British politics? Possibly. I mean, I think now it's very, very difficult not to have them. I mean, even if audiences for traditional TV news bulletins are declining, um, and even if the real discussion about what happens in TV debates actually happens afterwards on social media and there are arguments there about how various parties to these debates can frame uh, the part in which they've played in them. But I think it is still, even if TV is not as influential as it once was in, in political communication, 
to be a successful prime minister these days, you president these days, you have to be good on TV. I mean, if one thinks mm. of the example of the previous British prime minister, Theresa May, I'm quite sure that none of her even most ardent supporters would argue that she, she often looked uncomfortable on camera. She looked visibly nervous. Uh, and yes, you mentioned the United States in the 1960s. Of course, this goes back to Nixon and Kennedy, when well, so that, Kennedy's team had very clearly understood the potential of the new medium. And this younger man in a political culture where older men were still revered... Uh, performed surprisingly, astonishingly it's the, well. It's the, the famous Nixon-Kennedy debate. People who heard it on the radio thought Nixon won. People exactly. who saw it on television thought yeah. Kennedy won. Um, Tessa, does, does Austria go much in for this sort of thing? Well, we had so many TV debates now before the recent <laughs> elections that people were thinking, wow. But interestingly, the um, the millions of people every time watch them. People were really trying to make up their minds about these different uh, candidates, some of which were new, some of which were already well known, but the because the political debate shifted over the last half year in Austria quite a bit um, after the collapse of the far-right coalition. So people really wanted to know contents, issues, topics, how people presented themselves. Um, so it, I thought it was quite useful to have a lot of these debates, even if sometimes you think like, okay, we've heard that before. Yeah? Uh, just finally on this then, and finally on our news panel, I want to ask you both quickly, you first, James, among the democratic field as there currently is, is there one that you most want to see dem- debating Donald Trump this time next year? <laughs> Good question. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think Elizabeth Warren is probably a, 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 the most plausible of the candidates, but it's going to depend how the, 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 their primaries play out, obviously. And Tessa, which one of that field would you like to see Donald Trump trying to get to grips with? Well, I thought yesterday Bernie Sanders was quite impressive when he came back two weeks after his heart attack and made quite a good impression, very sharp and as usual. But Elizabeth Warren is the one who can, who I think should pick up the torch now and go fight this uh, next election from that lot that we currently see there. Who knows what will happen? Tessa Shishkovitz and James Rogers, thanks both for joining us. In a moment, the latest view from Monocle's editorial floor. This is Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, Monocle's fashion editor Jamie Waters examines our renewed interest in pre-owned clothing. Given that the luxury industry is built on being aspirational and exclusive, it's a little surprising that the luxury clothing resale and rental markets are booming. The online resale market is expected to more than double in size to 37 billion euros in the next three years, 
while the rental market is inundated with dynamic players. Perhaps the most intriguing thing is what this movement says about our shifting views toward high-end fashion, namely that items no longer need to be new in order to be covetable. Although vintage boutiques have existed for years, trailblazing resale and rental companies such as The Real Real and Rent the Runway are not trading nostalgic 80s gems. Their remit is almost new designer pieces instead. It would have been unfathomable, even a decade ago, to grow multi-million dollar businesses by selling pre-worn dresses and boots. So what's behind our softening stance on second hand? Younger generations especially have grown accustomed to a borrower culture. We Uber, Spotify and Airbnb regularly. We're comfortable using things that have previously been used by others. And then there's the S word, sustainability. Instead of being associated with pejorative hippy-dippy vibes, reusing, repurposing and recycling have become ingrained in mainstream thinking as important attractive things. So resourcefulness is celebrated, being wasteful is passé and secondhand has a new sheen. That was Jamie Waters. That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and May Lee Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs with Daniel. This week, a conversation with Norma Kamali and a look back at her career in fashion spanning half a century. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>